Amen. It is a blessing, as always, to be here with you today. I go by Ant. I serve as a pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. Uh, in case you, you are new, we are in 2024, uh, going through different sermon series, but collectively, uh, we're referring to this as the year of biblical literacy for us. So currently, we are working our way through different parts of the Torah, specifically looking at some of the main characters uh, in the Torah, uh, as the first five books of the Bible are called uh, the Torah. They're given for our instruction. You got a Bible with you? Go ahead and go to Genesis chapter 25. Uh, we'll get there shortly. Wanted to, to help you uh, kind of get a grasp of what we're talking about today, share a quick story with you. Uh, so this would have been about, I want to say, seven years ago. I remember being tired. I was at home, um, and I was scrolling through my phone, and I remember one of my children was talking to me, trying to tell me about something. Uh, and then, seemingly out of nowhere to me, uh, my son touches my leg, and he says, Dad, please put your phone down and look at me when we're talking. And I wanted to get defensive at first, but deep down I knew that he was right. Deep down I knew that in that moment I had chosen to do something that I personally believed was not what I should have been doing. I knew that I valued more I valued connection, or at least I should value connection with my children more than I valued whatever I was going through on my screen at the time. Not that it, it was not anything that was very important. It was just more probably mindless scrolling through on my phone on social media. But in that moment, I chose what I wanted or what felt more comfortable, most comfortable for me. That I chose that, excuse me, I chose that over what I know to be best in the present and in the long term. I think all of us have a tendency to do that at some point or in one way or another. Today, I want to think through and talk about what is that in us that causes us to do things that we know aren't best, that we know actually isn't what we want the most when we really think about it, but yet we still find ourselves time and time again saying yes to things we should say no to or saying no to things that we should say yes to. When we know what's best for us to do, and we know we will regret it if we don't do what's best, but we still do what we know we shouldn't do, we are showing a lack of self-control. I'll give you another example. It's, uh, it's a, in the middle of the week. It's a weekday, and I have some important things that I need to do. I need to be able to focus on the next day uh, because of the different things, maybe meetings I have to do or, or goals or deadlines and things like that. But I'm watching my favorite show. And, it, and it's Netflix. And, and I don't know if you know about Netflix, but Netflix will start that next episode whether you ask them to or not. Whether you, whether you ask them to or not, the thing just start rolling. And then I start with, I'm just going to watch five minutes. But then after I watch five minutes, now I got to know, <laughs> five hours, now I got to know what's going on. And so I'm more tired. I'm not as alert. I'm not as productive as I need to be. I'm choosing, and I'll talk about this a good bit today, instant gratification over lasting wellness, and when we talk about biblical self-control, overlasting wellness and righteousness. And this is what we do when we choose not to walk in self-control. So many of the narratives of the Old Testament are given to us as examples of what it looks like to follow God or not follow God. So today, as we continue uh, working through the Torah, we encounter a man named Esau. And his story has a lot to teach us about self 
control. Genesis chapter 25, starting at verse 24. The context of this is Isaac is becoming a dad. If you were with us last week, we talked about Abraham and his son Isaac. So at this point, Isaac is about to become a dad, and it shows us what happens here. Verse 24. It says, when her days to give birth were completed, so that's uh, Isaac's wife, Rebecca. Behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she was born to them. Now, if you, if you recall from last week, we talked about this promise, this covenant that God made with Abraham. That he was going to be a blessing to all the nations through Abraham's lineage, specifically through Isaac. And now we see uh, the sons that are born to Isaac. Verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. The Bible is so real. The Bible makes it very clear that because of so much sin, because of so many different problems in the world, that there are, there are broken families. There are families full of dysfunction and brokenness. We see this consistently in the Bible. Often in the families of some of the people that he uses the most in the Bible, you'll find dysfunction and brokenness. Esau liked to be outside in the field. Oftentimes, that's where most of the men would be. He liked to hunt and bring back food for himself and others. Jacob was more so hung out in the tents, which was more common for where the women were. Isaac, the father, had more affection for Esau, the man of the field, while Rebekah, their mom, had more affection for Jacob. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold, him his, sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So the birthright uh, at this time, it's, it's pretty difficult, I think, for people in our cultural context to fully understand what all just took place here. Um, your birthright meant at that time in that culture that you were to be the you're going to be the next leader of the family if you were the firstborn. You were given a position of responsibility and power to carry the family forward after the father passed away. And at this time, it's not too far before, too long before Isaac passes away. They became the person that set the direction for the family. They were given authority to call the shots to help settle disputes. Now, the firstborn also got a double, double portion of the father's wealth at this time compared to the other siblings, uh, and it meant blessing. It, meant, it, was, it was a way of the father blessing that particular son in that culture, and that's pretty foreign to us, but one of the things that we need to remember when we talk about speaking blessing over is the, the promise that God made to Abraham and thus to Isaac that, that, that their family was going to be a blessing to all the peoples, all the families of the earth. So literally what Esau is choosing to give up in this moment for a meal is the fact that God was going to use him to bring through, and, and the, his lineage will be the lineage of the Savior, Jesus Christ, who God is going to use to bless all nations of the earth. 
And Esau gives it up in a moment. Sells it in a moment because he was hungry. He would have become the family's leader. He would have had a lion's share of the wealth. He would have received these words of blessing. But he didn't possess self-control. Self-control is defined by one writer is the virtue possessed by one who masters their desires and passions. The virtue possessed by one who masters their desires and passions. And to be clear, if you don't master your desires and passions, then your desires and passions will master you. They will control you and lead you, and you will walk in step with exactly what they call you to do. The one with self-control has the ability to say yes to the things they need to say yes to and the ability to say no to the things that they know they should say no to. The enemy of self-control is the lie that instant gratification is more valuable than long-term righteousness and wellness. Again, the enemy of self-control is the lie that instant gratification is more valuable than long-term righteousness and wellness. And that's the lie that Esau buys into, is it not? That he cared more about what he felt in the moment. He cared more, he cared more about being satisfied in the moment than he cared about, what was, about the long-term good for himself. Esau trades away long-term future blessing and purpose and even riches to satisfy his appetite. This moment of temporary satisfaction not only impacted him, it also impacted the generations after him, impacted his children and their children for years and years to come, all to satisfy an appetite, to satisfy a craving, an urge, a desire that he had. The Apostle Paul talks about people who don't practice self-control in a very direct and, I believe, helpful and insightful way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. He says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. He said their God is their belly. He's saying they love, they worship, they submit to, and are devoted to their appetites. Biblically speaking, appetites like hunger and thirst are generally used to refer to or symbolize the deep yearnings and longings of our heart and our soul, the strong desires that we have often symbolized by appetites in the Bible. So the Apostle Paul is saying here that there are many who aren't looking to follow Christ that live as if their desires are their Lord and Savior. They believe that following their desires is how they will achieve life and life more abundantly. Time and time again, we bow down in worship before our own desires. So I want to be clear here. Satisfying, deep, real, sometimes emotional desires, spiritual desires, there's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having desires. There's nothing wrong with, 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 with enjoying some of those desires being satisfied. There are many desires that are God-given that he wants us to enjoy as they get satisfied. But what the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians is talking about is specifically when those desires become our God, when they become too much for us. Let me read this before I get ahead of myself. Proverbs 13, 12 says this, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The Bible doesn't have anything with, with us, have any problems with us experiencing fulfilled desires. He's saying it's a tree of life. This is a very good thing. The problem is, 
when we don't allow our pursuit of those desires being fulfilled to align with God and his word and his will for our lives. And I want us to be clear about Esau, that he was a man who on more than one occasion allowed himself to be led by his desires or mastered by his desires. Hebrews chapter 12, 15 and 16 say this, and it's instruction to followers of Jesus. It says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So now the pictures become a little bit more clear about Esau. He is a man that was led by his desires on more than one occasion. He is a man who, who this wasn't just a one-off where he was where he was, was dying or when he was extremely hungry, which I don't believe he was dying at all. It just seems like he was extremely hungry, even though he said he was going to die. He is a man who seemingly multiple occurrences at multiple times was controlled by his desires instead of controlling his desires. And so as we look at this narrative about Esau, it gives us insight into some of the problems and some of the tendencies of those who do not practice self-control or of those who lack self-control. Point number one for today, people who don't practice self-control practice self-destruction. People who don't practice self-control practice self-destruction. I want us to read a little bit further in Esau's story, just one verse in Genesis chapter 27. It reads, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. So now Esau mad at Jacob. Like he didn't play a role in this. Like he didn't agree to this and swear away his birthright. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Esau not only loses out on his blessing because of his lack of self-control. He also now, largely because of his own decisions, is planning to murder his twin brother. In Esau's life, in our lives, if we don't practice self-control, we practice self-destruction. I'm sure Esau never, never wanted it to get to this. He never wanted to feel this way about his brother. This, his lack of self-control, as we see in his life and as we see throughout the many narratives of the Bible, the lack of self-control is not only problematic, but it is destructive and it leads to destruction. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28 says this, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. It's like a city. There's two descriptors of this city. One, it's broken into. Two, it's without walls. Here's why that is significant given the context of this time, specifically in the Old Testament. Cities, their defense against attackers, which they were often threatened to be attacked because so many kingdoms and empires were always trying to expand. They would have these huge walls. This is why when the walls of Jericho fell down, God's people had victory over Jericho because the walls were the protection. The walls were what kept opposing armies on the outside, kept them away from, from those who weren't warriors, kept them away from everything that that town or that city, I should say, owned. And so what it's saying is a man without self-control, A, is like a city broken into. So the city has already been broken into. The city's already got problems. People are already, whether they're stealing or, or pillaging or, or, or committing acts of violence or whatever it might be, and a city that doesn't have any walls. 
We're referring to a city that does not have any defenses against further attack. This proverb is describing or using the metaphor of a city to describe people who don't practice self-control and saying essentially the enemy is on the inside. The enemy is here. The problem's not out there. The problem's not somebody else. If you struggle to control yourself when you're in conflict with somebody, they're not your main problem. You're your main problem. The problem is on the inside. That's what this proverb is saying. It's like a city without walls that's already been broken into. The, The enemy is on the inside, and you can't prevent more problem from coming on the inside. It's what this proverb is pointing us to. The Bible is showing us that a person that does not practice self-control is without protection. They can't take care of their own self, no matter how strong or gifted or talented or educated or experienced or smart they might be. They're always vulnerable to being captured and imprisoned by the fleeting desires of the moment, by this, by this urge, this craving for instant gratification. Some of us, we, we struggle to accomplish goals that, that are good for us and often glorifying the God because of a lack of self-control. We can be mastered by our desire for comfort or maybe for ease of life. You know, there's a lot of people who lose the job that they pray for because of a lack of self-control. No matter, oftentimes, no matter what our capacity is, no matter what our potential is, no matter what our abilities are, oftentimes if we don't have self-control, we miss the blessings that God desires for us to be able to experience. For some of us, whether it's an inability to be reliable, because we can't make ourselves be where we need to be doing the things we're supposed to be doing, or when we're supposed to be doing them. For some of us, it's, it's, not that we're, it's not that we're not where we're supposed to be, but some of us, when we're there for whatever reason, our behavior is not acceptable in the way that it should be. I find 1 Peter to be very insightful in this, 1 Peter 2.11. says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. When we as Christians do not practice self-control, we're simply at the mercy of the consequences of the passions or the lusts or the desires that wage war against us, which means we're actually at the mercy of our enemy. We're at the mercy of the consequences that our, our enemy, these passions that wage war against us, we're at the mercy of the consequences that they bestow upon us. Being at the mercy of your enemies is the worst place to be in a fight. The city is broken into, the walls are down, and we're at the mercy of our enemies if we do not practice self-control. See, the self-destruction isn't just in terms of fleeting things, <clears throat> excuse me, in this life or things that can be taken away from us in this life, like, like jobs or achievements and things like that, but the self-destruction is also spiritual. I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, but a refusal to practice self-control can very easily do damage to all aspects of your Christian walk. Every aspect of your Christian walk can be damaged by a lack of self-control. Not practicing self-control can cause you to neglect intentional times of prayer and meditation on God's word if we can't say no to the other things that seem to fill our schedule instead. Not practicing self-control will prevent you from fasting because you can't say no for a previously determined amount of time to your appetite to have food. 
Not practicing self-control will prevent you from enjoying rest the way that God calls us to, because for some of us, our urges, our desires are to always busy ourselves and continue going on and on and on repeatedly and never stopping to enjoy the rest, never controlling ourselves enough, never being able to, to, to steal ourselves enough to enjoy the rest that God calls us to. Not practicing self-control can prevent you from intentionally joining God in his mission to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven because we can't say no to the other things that consume a lot of our time. Not practicing self-control can prevent you from being financially generous to God's mission because if you can't control your spending because you can't say no to the desires that you have and things that you desire to buy. A Christian who, in the moment, doesn't practice self-control by remembering that instant gratification is not more valuable than long-term righteousness and wellness is a city that is broken into, <clears throat> excuse me, and without walls, and often suffers spiritually because of an inability to say no to the things we need to say no to and say yes to the things that we should say yes to. And when we lack self-control, we place our desires and our feelings in the driver's seat of our lives, while judgment and wisdom and reasoning from God's word ride in the passenger seat. And when you don't drive with good judgment, you're not the only one that's in danger, but you endanger those around you as well. My second point is those who don't practice self-control often hurt those who come around or after them. Those who don't practice self-control often hurt those who come around them or after them. When Esau gave away his birthright, it didn't just affect him. It affected his descendants. It affected his relationship with his brother as he, <clears throat> excuse me, desired to murder his brother. It would have affected his, it affected his lineage for generations. When we go through the rest of the Bible, it's not Esau's lineage that we're going to be following. When we see all the blessings, when we see them get into the promised land, it's not Esau's lineage that gets into the promised land, even though that's who originally it was going to be. It's Jacob's lineage. If you're familiar with the story, later Jacob's name gets turned to Israel. The children of Israel that the primary narratives about the Bible are usually talking about, it's talking about Jacob's lineage, not Esau's, because of one meal. Because he couldn't say no to the appetite because he couldn't deny himself the urges for just a few moments because he couldn't practice self-control. Some of us here today are suffering from the effects of those who came before us and their inability to practice self-control. That may be something like alcoholism or some other substance abuse, some form of unfaithfulness, might be from overworking and never being available and never being around. Might have come from an inability to resist a life free from many of the responsibilities of being a parent. It may come from an inability to control our words and our actions in times of conflict and anger. <clears throat> Some of us have experienced great damage to various kinds of relationships as a result of us ourselves or others not being able to control our words or our actions particularly in times of conflict. Someone said something that we don't appreciate. Deep down, we know it's not good for us to respond because every single response that comes to our mind ain't of God. 
is not of God. But we feel the urge in the moment. We feel the intensity of the moment and we desire to, to respond, whether it's to defend ourselves or to vent our anger or whatever it is. <clears throat> and oftentimes, I believe we all are guilty at one point or another, that we value that instant gratification, that instant satisfaction more than we value the love that we're called to share by our God. Family, the more I looked at Esau and what this lack of self-control did to him, <clears throat> The more I considered how rampant a lack of self-control is in our world, honestly, and even as I was preparing this sermon, the more burdened I became for us as a people of God, for us as a church, for our world, the world that we live in, the more I think about how, how much damage has been caused by this lack of self-control that we have. We have so many examples in the lives of people we know in our own lives, in the lives of the Bible characters like Esau, who, of how a lack of self-control has caused so much destruction. And that's one of the reasons I'm glad Esau and others like him aren't our only examples in the Bible. As I look at the world around us, we need someone who can free us from being imprisoned and mastered by our desires. We need someone who has shown us that the desire for instant gratification has no hold on them. And this makes me grateful for not only the death of Jesus, but the sinless life of Jesus. <clears throat> the fact that he was never mastered by sinful desires or the allure for instant gratification shows us that he is the one that can actually lead us to freedom and lead us to righteousness. He's the only one who has never been controlled or, or mastered by those desires. And the fact that he was never mastered by those things allows us to have confidence in him that he is leading us down paths of righteousness that the path that he calls us to is the path that we should follow. From the manger in Bethlehem to the Roman cross, he never did anything that he wasn't supposed to do. And he did all the things that he was supposed to do. He never sacrificed the long-term good and wellness for instant gratification. When he was tempted in the wilderness to forsake his calling and his mission and, and take the easy way out, he resisted temptation with the word of God. When the religious leaders of his day were against him and wanted to get rid of him, he continued to extend fellowship to them by having meals with them and lovingly telling them the truth and pointing them to the truth without ever sinning against them. When he wanted to not have to go to the cross because of the agony that was before him, he stayed the course for our salvation. He has now defeated sin and death, and he says to us, who have time and time again been mastered by our desires for instant gratification, he says, you have a new master now. That instant gratification is no longer your master. That your desires that wage war against your souls no longer master you. You have a new master now that will not lead you to self-destruction. No longer do you have a master that will cause you to harm the ones that you love. You have a master now that leads you to eternal joy and eternal peace and eternal flourishing and health and prosperity. Let us follow him, church. Let us trade in our lives of being ruled by the desires for instant gratification. And let us receive from our Savior a life of self-control, appropriately valuing what is truly good for our lives. Fam, I said a few moments ago that I've just been burdened for us as a people, for our world, uh, when thinking about how difficult it is to practice self-control, 
and how damaging it is when we don't practice self-control. And I was just going before the Lord, like, Lord, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And it, it came to me, I just, and I just deeply believe we need to have a little bit of time to pray for ourselves. We talk, we just saying about our God being the lion, the lion of Judah. We asked a rhetorical question, who can stop the Lord Almighty? And it was even confirmation to me as I was thinking about this, that the strength that we need to practice self-control, here's the beautiful irony as self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit, that the strength that we need to practice self-control doesn't come from self. The strength that we need to practice self-control comes from the Holy Spirit who is in us, who has united himself with us. So, so here's what I want us to do. We're going to have a bit of time of prayer. In just a moment, I'll call up uh, Talisa to pray, and then, I'll call, and then Kayla will come up and pray a little bit after Talisa does. And just, they're just going to lead us in a time of prayer and praying for us as a people to be able to practice self-control in the way that God calls us to. During that time, there's a couple different things that you can do. One, if you're someone that says, I would love for someone to pray for me, whether that is whether that is for your own growth or your own ability to practice self-control, or maybe you notice as you were listening to the sermon, maybe how someone else's lack of self-control is affecting you and has done and, and has harmed you in some way. Either way, if you want somebody to come and just put a hand on your shoulder and pray for you, uh, once um, Talisa comes up, I'll, I'll just invite you to stand up at that time. We'll have some, make sure someone comes and just puts a hand on your shoulder to let you know we're with you and we're praying for you. Uh, and if you're not standing up, if you're not going to someone who is standing up, uh, then we just ask you to, to not see this as a spectator sport, but to be engaged and pray during this time. Now, this is a time of corporate prayer. This is not just a time for people praying that are up here or people who are moving to others who, who are standing up showing that they desire to be prayed for. But we de I desire for this to be a time where we are going before the Lord, seeking him, pleading with him, God, grow us in this area. Your spirit, you are powerful enough to give us the strength that we need in the moment of temptation to practice the self-control that you desire for us to have. So we want everyone participating in some way in this time uh, of corporate prayer. This time, Talisa, if you can go ahead and come up to the front uh, and lead us in a time of prayer. And again, if you desire for just someone to come to you and pray for you, we want to invite you to stand up at this time as we'll, and we'll come around you and pray for you. 